Greetings, friends and brethren. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God. Let's talk about sin. What is it, and how can you sin less? Is there a biblical definition? Is it important to know it? Did you teach your kids about sin? Are there consequences to sin? You know, a lot of people seem to be confused about what sin is, and a lot of people don't want to hear that things are sin. And uh, so, as far as what is sin, uh, the late uh, Pastor General of the old Worldwide Church of God, Herbert Armstrong, said that the world had the wrong definition. And basically, according to him, the world's definition was the way to act and live that gives what those who dare to do it increased pleasure, fun, good time, enjoyment. The forbidden fruit that is sweeter and more desirable. He says that concept, the one realizes that God's unjust and unfair forbidding us to really enjoy life. As a consequence, sin is the, the desirable way forbidden, or at least frowned upon, by respectable society under religious influence. Well, when he wrote this, uh, back in 1950, it's a bit different than now. Nowadays, you have society that actually encourages some of these things, uh, a lot more than it did back then. And so... Uh, He's basically going through and saying, okay, the world basically says sin is, is what's fun and God's just mean and uh, gets rid of it. And he says this concept was uh, illustrated by the deathbed confession of an atheist. So let's tell this story. Herbert says this atheist's daughter came to his bedside and said, uh, while he's dying, you know, he's going to die. Father, now that you're, on, you're going to die, tell me the truth. What do you think is best? Your atheism or mother's Christianity? Well, daughter, the dying man replied, I still believe that my way is the best way to live by, but I have to confess, at last, your mother's religion is the best to die in. And her said, well, that was a common idea. People think that God's unfair and expect people to give up worthwhile things uh, to die enjoying their life. Growing up uh, Roman Catholic, I kind of noticed that people seemed to think it was okay to do all kinds of bad things because uh, as long as you went to confession uh, later, it would be okay. And essentially, I saw as, at least with my family members, as they got older, ones who were less inclined to follow more of the uh, uh, doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, seem as they got older, they got closer to doing more and more of those. Kind of reminds me of these people thinking, okay, well, you do all this stuff now, then later you can change uh, and, 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 and go through the motion. Now, according to the view Herbert Armstrong said the world had, it says uh, the, the, the best way to cheat God is to live in sin, enjoy life, then squeeze through at a last-minute deathbed confession. This concept is Satan's masterpiece delusion, fashioned upon an unthinking world. It pictures uh, uh, God as a monster who saves people through fear of penalties unless they forsake the more desirable ways of his narrow and unhappy way. It hides God's love, turns God's love, law of love into an evil thing, teach human beings of uh, happiness, peace, success, and joy. The world, he wrote, deceived as to right and wrong, it does wrong, and it wonders why it's so unhappy, why there's so much suffering in the world today. 
God help us to discern the true values from the false. God has revealed the right and true way. And where has He done that? Well, He's revealed it in His Word. Uh, Herbert Armstrong was correct that yes, the world often wants to live the wrong way. As a matter of fact, we're in a society now that if you say these ways are bad, they want to shut you up or take you off the internet or in some countries like Canada, fine you. Um, but as far as sin goes, what is it? I'm going to go to 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. I want to read uh, four different translations. So the first one would be the New King James Version of the Bible, which is the one I normally read from. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. That one's not as clear as the uh, Old King James, which says, Whosoever commits any sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. That's much clearer. Now, the Dewey Rames Bible, it's a Catholic Bible, Roman Catholic Bible, Whosoever commits sin commits, commits also iniquity, sin is iniquity. And the Eastern Orthodox Bible says everyone who breaks the law, and in fact, sin is lawlessness. So the concepts get through there. Now what law? Well, God's law, which is in His Word, Psalm 119.11. That includes the Ten Commandments. And before going further, I do want to say we have a, a, a book that you can have you find it free, you can go to ccog.org on the Ten Commandments. Um, it's going to go through some of the stuff I'm going to talk about in the Ten Commandments today. And it also discusses how various ones get around, try, I think they're getting around them and getting away with it. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees thought they were getting away with it. People thought they kept the Ten Commandments, but actually Jesus condemned them for breaking them all. And modern, some modern Pharisees do the same thing. Anyway, although no one's forced to sin, the Bible teaches all have sinned, and that sin is destructive. Now, why do humans sin? Why do people sin now? Well, basically, for the same reason Adam and Eve sinned. They were deceived by Satan and or their lust. Satan's deceived the whole world. He's used uh, every evil thought that he could to influence and deceive all humankind. Satan has broadcast his philosophy far and wide and he appeals to vanity, lust, and greed, peer pressure to influence us. I'd like to read something from the late uh, evangelist Leroy Neff. This is from Tomorrow's World magazine in April of 1972. Each of us has been tuned to this deceitful bombardment from Satan from an early age. Satan has used this method to insert wrong thoughts and he uses the environment and circumstances to influence us to make wrong decisions like Adam and Eve did. When we were born, we had no hatred or animosity against God or His perfect way. We didn't even know God existed or that He had a right way for us to live. But in due time, we too developed the same attitude as Satan of selfishness, of greed and lust and wanting our own way. When we were little children, we may have been like those that uh, Jesus spoke of in Matthew 18. They were humble and teachable, yet not fully deceived by Satan and his society. 
as Leroy Neff writes here, all human woe, unhappiness, pain, and misery have come as a direct result of sin, the violation of God's spiritual and physical laws. Happiness and a full abundant life are the automatic result of obedience to God's law. Now, yes, Jesus did die for our sins, but sin has a cost. And a long-term cost is that it negatively impacts the sinner and one's potential to do more good, than, even more good than they would be otherwise. So don't think that sinning now is good for you or others, but hopefully learn lessons from sins, confess and repent of them. Now thousands of years ago, in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29, well you read part of the verse, Solomon was inspired to write that humans were not made to sin. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. God made man upright. But they fought out, excuse me, they've sought out many schemes. And even today, humans choose the wrong way. And, uh, and they follow uh, often improper schemes. Now, because of many teachings and traditions, many don't recognize sin in this age. Now, I want to go to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, starting verse 7. And instead of reading it from the uh, New King James, this time I'm going to read it from the Berean Literal Bible. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is working already. There is only the one at present restraining it until he might be gone out of the midst. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will consume with the breath of his mouth and will annul at the appearing of his coming, whose coming is according to the working of Satan in every power and in signs and in wonder of falsehood, and in every deception of wickedness unto the, those perishing, in return for which they did not receive the love of the truth in order for them to be saved. And because of this, God will send them working of delusion for them to believe what is false, in order that those having not believed the truth, but having delighted in unrighteousness, will be judged. Now, part of the mystery of lawlessness, or called the mystery of iniquity, for example, in the Dewey Rames Bible, many haven't been taught the proper truth about sin, or they've been taught to reason around God's law, just like the Pharisees did at Jesus' time. Instead of, uh, and they, many people are like the Pharisees, they accept improper traditions. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 15 to the Pharisees, Woe to you, okay, you'll clean the outside of the cup, you've got various traditions but you've got ways around the commandments. You th people think you keep the commandments, you try to look like you do, but you don't. Because you rely on tradition above that. And we see that uh, with uh, various Greco-Roman uh, and Protestants. Paul wrote those who uh, believe the lie, those who have sufficient love and the truth, are going to get even more deceived as we get closer to the end of the age and the rising of the lawless one was called the beast in Revelation 13. They're going to be condemned because they didn't believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And we've got more and more of a society uh, in the West going that direction. Uh, and uh, what I mean by that, there's always been a problem with sin in society. But we're seeing... 
<laughs> uh, more uh, public promoting of what people used to realize was sin. Now, in Psalm 119, 172, it says, All of God's commandments are righteousness. Um, and those who have pleasure in unrighteousness obviously are not truly keeping God's commandments. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote the mystery of lawlessness or iniquity had begun already in his day. And in Ephesians 5, 6, he also wrote, People should not be deceived by empty words to get them to disobey. Now, we have this in our Ten Commandments book, but we also have a book called Hope of Salvation, How the Continuing Church of God Differs from Protestantism, where we go into the fact that many Protestants have been deceived by various traditions above Scripture. And if, if those who claim to be Protestant would actually rely on the Bible, Sola Scriptura, like they claim, they wouldn't be Protestant, they would be Church of God. Uh, make that as a challenge to any Protestant would be to go through this book and explain why the scriptures are wrong or the doctrines based on the scriptures are wrong as opposed to your traditions. Because sadly, Protestants rely on all types of traditions. Now, there's some Protestants who don't quite realize this and some that God may be calling now and hopefully God will be calling now as well as later who will look into the more depth and actually go back to understanding what sin is. But Protestantism has done a number on sin and try to make people think that they're not sinning when they do. And Paul warned about that again in Ephesians 5, 6. Then that mystery of lawlessness is manifested by the Greco-Roman Protestants when it comes to many aspects of God's law, including the Ten Commandments. The true Church of God upholds God's law, as Apostle John said to do in 1 John 5. It teaches that God set in motion laws that if obeyed would bring good to humanity, including an abundant and productive full life. In Proverbs 29, verse 18, I'm going to read this, it's a short verse. We read, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. The Bible also teaches in Psalm 111, verse 10, keeping God's law brings understanding and happiness in Proverbs 16, 16, to those who trust God. Now the true church of God proclaims that God's law is not done away, but it's been exalted and made honorable, as it was foretold in Isaiah 42, uh, verse 21, and expanded by Jesus, as you can see, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 17 to 48. Many who professed Christ, however, sadly want to believe the lie that the Ten Commandments were done away and don't mean what they say because of false traditions of men as well as improper translations of the Bible. And again, we do go into that in this book uh, on the Ten Commandments. We also do go into this book on Protestantism. Again, you can go to the ccog.org website, click under the Literature tab, go under Books and Booklets, and you'll find these. And you can read them. We don't ask you for your email address or anything. You can read them on your own and check out what we say. Prove all things, hold fast what is good. You can check out what we say. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word, that's the word of God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And I mentioned Psalm 119, verse 172, but I'd like to actually read what it says. My tongue shall speak of your word, 
for all your commandments are righteousness. The true church teaches that the Ten Commandment Law is one of God's greatest gifts to humankind. And His commandments are righteousness, and that keeping them reflects love. As a matter of fact, uh, the Bible says, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, the Apostle Paul wrote, Now the purpose of the commandment is love. And sin actually promotes hate as opposed to love. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, they took uh, to themselves the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of uh, good and evil. Now, not everything that they learned was evil. Some was actually good. So we can read about that in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, starting verse 6. So when the women saw the tree was good for fruit, she's using her head, she thought, and it was pleasant to the eyes. Ah, it looks, ah, check this out. Okay. And it was desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So, you see, Eve thought that uh, sin had benefits, and it wasn't so bad. So she acted. Satan had appealed to her pride. Now, Satan's not much of an original thinker in the sense that what works one generation works in others. Satan has long used pride and similar temptations throughout history, including various lusts of the flesh. Now, the Apostle Paul warned, let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. Starting verse 12, Paul wrote, Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, such as common to man. Well, Eve thought um, she was fine. She wasn't going to fall, but she did. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So no, you do not have to stay in your sins. You do not have to live in your sins, no matter what they are. Now, I should also comment that not having faith is also a sin. I want to go to uh, John 16. Uh, I'm going to read verses uh, 8 and 9. And this is going to be from the AFB, because the uh, other, most of the other translations get the gender wrong. Anyway, related to the Holy Spirit, Jesus stated, John 16, starting verse 8, And when that one has come, it will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me or do not believe Jesus. And a lot of people don't have the type of faith, enough faith in Jesus to actually live the way Jesus wanted them to live. Now, one other thing I should mention is we need to be careful about judging. You know, Jesus warned in John 7:27. And you don't have to go there. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. As, as physical beings, we tend to judge according to appearance. Eve did. Now, many of the world's churches appear to do some good. Many people have given their lives to promote what they felt was right. Many have tried to serve others. And uh, various parts of the clergy uh, have uh, Protestant or Greco-Roman clergy made statements 
that that seem you know fine, and they not everything they promote is is bad, and that's part of the mystery of iniquity. If it was clearly bad, people would recognize that. But but good and bad are mixed together. It's harder for most to see. Matter of fact, when they want to poison somebody, uh, without them knowing, they'll usually mix a little bit of poison in something that tastes good. Because they just give you some bad taste poison, people might uh, spit it out, not adjust enough of it to die. Same thing, good and evil are mixed together, it's harder for people to see it. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. Some have put their confidence in things like seeing people cast out demons or doing it themselves or speaking in tongues or in apparitions or various wondrous signs. It's proof that their church is true. But that's not what Jesus taught. If you go to uh, uh, Matthew chapter uh, 7, we're going to read starting verse uh, 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, this is what Jesus is saying, shall enter the King of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Despite the claim of some Protestants, simply calling Jesus Lord is not sufficient. Okay, The word translated as lawlessness is the word anomia, uh, and which has to do with uh, law-breaking, being lawless. Now, I want to read Psalm 119, verse 21, from the Old King James Version of the Bible. Because God rebukes those that err from His commandments. Psalm 119, verse 21, Old King James. You have rebuked the proud that are cursed, which err from thy commandments. Yes, there are proud scholars, uh, Greco-Roman Protestant scholars. They got this stuff and they tell you, oh, they're scholars, you can believe them and you can go their way. Uh, no, you need to believe what the Bible teaches. And by the way, early Christians. Early Christians, by the way, kept the Ten Commandments. This is one problem Protestants have. They, one, don't understand the true history of the true church. They don't know where the true Christian church is today. Again, any book that I hold up is available free at ccog.org. Uh, they don't properly understand about the Ten Commandments. They rely on mistranslations. They reason around them. They think they're so smart that their traditions override it. And then they uh, condemn the uh, Greco-Romans for relying on traditions. And the Greco-Romans, by the way, throughout history have noticed Protestant hypocrisy about that. Anyway, I want to go to Matthew 24. Starting in verse 12, because this is a warning about the end times. Matthew 24, verse 12. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and the end will come. Notice that lawlessness, from the Greek word anomium, is going to abound at the time of the end according to your Bible. The love of, of many waxing cold seems to be a reference to the Laodiceans. They tend to think that they keep the law, uh, but and that they're fine, but they're not according to uh, Jesus. 
You read about that in Revelation uh, 3, 14 to 18. Uh, the Laodiceans are not truly supporting getting the witness of the gospel of the kingdom out. Their hearts really aren't in it. They're not opposed to it, but they tend to be lukewarm about it. And the society keeps pushing lawlessness more and more. Now, very few moderns understand the mystery of lawlessness. Uh, though a thorough search of scriptures uh, would certainly help explain it. Now, the mystery of lawlessness is related to professing Christians who believe they don't need to keep God's Ten Commandment law, etc., and that there's and or there's so many exceptions to it, uh, and, and or that there's acceptable forms of penance to break God's law. So they think they have a form of God's law, but they're not keeping the form of Christianity that Jesus or the early disciples kept. I mentioned before that many of the modern uh, Greco-Romans are like the Pharisees who violated God's commandments, decided traditions were acceptable. Jesus denounced this. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 30, verse uh, 9, warned that people would rebel. They would claim to be God's people, but they would rebel against God's law. And that's something that we see today. You know, the mystery of lawlessness was already at work at the time of... Uh, Paul when he wrote about it and uh, we're going to see something called the mystery Babylon the Great get more and more power at the time of the end. Anyway, a lot of this is a mystery of the Greco-Roman Protestants because they normally officially do not believe uh, that they need to keep uh, the whole law and Protestants basically claim that Jesus kept the law uh, or was nailed to the law or uh, cross Jesus fulfilled it or something like this. Now let's go to uh, 1 John 2. Starting in verse 3. Now, Protestants tend to believe if you love Jesus, that's somehow keeping the law and then you're not sinning. But those who tell that without doing what they're supposed to, you know, faith without works is dead, they're deceiving themselves. John wrote, 1 John 2, starting verse 3. Now by this we know we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But he who keeps his word, truly has the love of God, is perfected in him. We know that we're in him. He who says you abides in him ought to walk just as he walked. And Jesus kept the Ten Commandments, and early Christians kept the Ten Commandments. This is known. Okay, Protestants have a problem. Protestant teachers who teach you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments can't find anybody who was truly considered to be faithful, even by, you know, by the Greco-Romans either, who didn't advocate keeping the Ten Commandments. Early Christians kept the Ten Commandments. Prode modern Protestants who teach you that you do not have to keep the Ten Commandments are not contending earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints that Jude said to do in Jude verse 3. Simply, that was not the case. They, uh, early professors of Christ, realized they're supposed to keep the Ten Commandments. And as I mentioned, it's a mystery to uh, the Greco-Romans because officially they do teach they're supposed to keep them, but they have various uh, exceptions to them and so they don't keep them unless they should. They're more like the Pharisees. And again, we go into that in great depth in this particular book here. Now, over time, more and more, the Greco-Romans churches came all kinds of exceptions. They taught penance instead of repentance. Now, I'd like to uh, cite something from the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is 
Item number 1459, if you want to go look this up. And I was at the Vatican's website uh, a couple days ago where I got this. Raised up from sin, the sinner must still recover his full spiritual health by doing something more to make amends for the sin. He must make satisfaction for or expiate his sins. This satisfaction is called penance. But you can't pay the penalty for your sins. Don't think you can. Only truly accepting the blood of Jesus does that. Jesus, not you, is the atoning sacrifice. I'm going to read Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So that's where it comes from. Now let's all go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 23. I'll give you a moment to get there, so use the excuse to get some water while you go there. Normally I'll grab the water to give people an opportunity to look up Scripture to get there. Uh, I don't do it with that because I've typed them out because I find that if I haven't typed them out, if I go and look them up, too many of them up, uh, the page uh, rattling affects the uh, microphone and the recording of the audio here. Anyway, Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means you, me, and everybody else. Being justified freely by His grace through redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because of His in His forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. It's because of Jesus. To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He may be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Yes, Jesus is a justifier of those who have faith in Him. You have to have faith, I told you before. If you don't have faith, it's a, it's a sin. Now Christians are supposed to acknowledge and confess their sins. Uh, and then have faith Jesus will forgive them. You know, it says in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, it's not a just man on earth who does good or doesn't sin. All of us have sinned. So it's from the Old Testament and the New Testament we read all sin. Now I'd like to go to 1 John. 1 John 1, starting verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and the truth is not in us. No, doing penance after confession is not a biblical requirement. The Bible teaches repentance, turn away from sin, not penance, which is basically trying to pay part of the penalty through some kind of human action. Let's go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read part of verse 38. The apostle Peter taught, Acts 2, cutting in verse 38. Repent! And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, go to the next chapter, Acts 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. 
See, being converted means to, to, to completely change, not do some act for your sins. Now I want to go to 2 Peter. I want to go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Now I'm going to read verse 9. And I plan on reading it from uh, two different translations. First, the uh, New King James. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some cause slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now I'm also going to read that from the New Jerusalem Bible, which is the Roman Catholic translation. The Lord is not being slow in carrying out his promise, as some people think he is. Rather, is he being patient with you, wanting nobody to be lost, everybody to be brought to repentance? And the reason I've done this is to show Roman Catholics that yes, uh, at least this part, this version, this translation of a Catholic version of the Bible does talk about repentance, because sadly a lot of Catholic translators have used the word penance in lots of places, which it doesn't really say. Uh, God's not trying to bring us to penance, you know, to intentionally inflict punishment upon ourselves for sin, but repentance, which is changing from following the influence of Satan to following God. Let's go to Romans 6, verse 22. The Apostle Paul wrote Romans 6, starting verse 22. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of sin, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. So sin's not a good thing, but the gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now as far as Paul himself goes, he continued to keep God's laws. You can see that in Acts 25.8. Jesus did, says that in uh, John 15.10. And Paul taught to imitate him as he imitated Jesus, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1. The mystery of lawlessness or iniquity is something that the religious Greco-Roman Protestants as, and Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, reason around. Uh, yet they think their faith is fine. And yes, I've talked to Jehovah's Witnesses about this and uh, they don't believe they have to keep Ten Commandments either. Now the mystery of iniquity is practicing a false religion that looks good to Satan and a lot of others, but not to God. You know, Jesus said, you don't have to go there, John 4.24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the truth is, Jesus kept the Ten Commandments, Paul kept the Ten Commandments, early Christians kept the Ten Commandments, did not reason around them like the Pharisees did and a lot of moderns do now. And the Bible teaches that in the end, true Christians will still be keeping the Ten Commandments. You can read that the commandments will be kept in Revelation 12, 17, as well as uh, Revelation 14, verse 12. By the way, Protestants try to get around that and say this is talking about Jews who are converted after their rapture or something along that line, but it doesn't say that. It says these people have the testimony of, of uh, Jesus Christ and keep the commandments of God. It doesn't say that these are newly Jewish converts after uh, a rapture or anything like that. Now, do you hate sin? Do you minimize the damage of sin? Do you dismiss your sins because, you know, other people are way more sinners than you? Let's go to the book of uh, Luke, Luke chapter 18. Read over some stuff that Jesus taught, because the Pharisees were like that. And so are the Laodiceans, by the way. I remember talking to a Laodicean who I think recently died, and he had excuses for why he didn't have to do certain things. 
and basically he said that ministers who apostatized uh, had chastised him on things he didn't like and they apostatized and he still uh, keeps his version of the Sabbath or is keeping it in his version of the Holy Days. Therefore he was totally fine and it's like, uh, no, that's not how you're supposed to do it. Well anyway, in Luke 18 starting verse uh, 10, Jesus said there were two men who went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And they were considered like scum, the tax collectors, because they were in league with the Romans. Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you I'm not like other men. There's a Church of God leader, uh, a claimed Church of God leader, who I don't believe is converted, who's basically said this to his people. Uh, cut from a different cloth or whatever term you use, I won't mention who he is. I think I, I'm not like other men. And the other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, wouldn't so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. You've got to be careful. Um, so we've got this man who didn't think he committed any great sin. At least he didn't think so. Uh, and he was sure he was righteous before God. What was the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? Well, the publican or the tax collector, he had committed serious sins, but he knew it. And he was willing to change. But the Pharisee blinded himself to his sins. In his sight, he'd done anything wrong. Uh, so his faults didn't exist. Through self-righteousness, the Pharisee had fallen into the trap of thinking the sins of other people were worse than his. And by comparing himself to them, he thought he was pure. Uh, after all, I haven't thought to commit these sins like these other people did. As a result, he never saw his total wretchedness before God. Well, that's a great lesson, that parable, for us today. Are we like modern Pharisees? Do we seek to justify our sins by comparing ourselves with others, including we're not so bad after all? And by the way, this was published by the old Worldwide Church of God. That's what I was just reading, that last part, back in 1971. So, yes, yeah, talking to uh, Christians or potential Christians. You know, James wrote, you don't have to go there, but James 1, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't deceive yourselves. You know, how does God look at sin? It's obvious that you know certain sins hurt more, some people more than others. Uh, murder kills people. Adultery causes a lot of more damage uh, than if you tell somebody you're going to show up for an appointment and you don't try to keep your word. On the other hand, you've got to think about what people think are small items or small sins. Anyway, sin is sin and wrong is wrong. Evil is evil no matter to what degree. You know, to ask which of two sins is worse is asking what's worse, Sodom or Gomorrah. Regardless of how minor or small some think sins are, you know, Jesus, uh, God's word records that uh, the wage of sin is death. That death is a lake of fire. No sins are to be trifled with. You know, we don't want to keep them. All sin results in uh, eternal death. Now, of course, we confess our sins and we can be forgiven of our sins. You know, some sins, yes, do have an immediate penalty. For example, if you tell your child, don't touch something that's hot and burning, 
and your child dishonors you as a parent and immediately touches it uh, and gets burnt, uh, that penalty is clear. But uh, some damage done by small sins over time could be even more devastating. In James 2 verse 10, he had written that if you, whoever keeps the whole law but breaks one part is guilty of breaking the whole thing. Our attitude as Christians should be to seek out and eliminate every sin, every wrong thought, every evil way. We shouldn't be hanging on to small faults because, well, we're this just this way, I was raised this way, my ancestry, whatever, just because they don't seem as bad as uh, obviously great sins. You know, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, and I'll give you a moment to go there. For we dare not class or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. And I see this amongst the Laodiceans, and I got another Laodicean couple of emails. Uh, somebody's convinced that uh, the most important thing is we need to wear uh, tassels on our clothes. I ex tried to explain to this person, early Christians didn't do that. Even the Apostle Paul didn't do that, and he tried to argue with me that Paul did, because Paul kept the law. Uh, but Paul also wrote, wrote that there were changes to the law, and people would not have identified Paul as a Greek if he was wearing uh, tassels, etc., like the Jews were doing. He was not looking like a Jew because they weren't doing it anymore. And the fact that the Bible says that the law would be written in our hearts. And so we don't need to wear the tassels or tzitzits or whatever the Jews call them. But this person's doing that. And if I went through all the Laodicean things that I've run into, you would be shocked. People were not with us for a variety of reasons. They are convinced are super, super important. But I will say that I'm convinced that these people are Laodicean, if they're even true Christians. Uh, they're focused on the wrong thing. You know, we're not supposed to compare sins. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, you know, Woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven against people, but you don't go into yourself. Okay? Well, they thought they were keeping God's law. And they cleaned the outside of the cup, Jesus said, but the inside is full of extortion, etc. And they're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And he called them serpents and a generation of vipers. And that they weren't going to uh, escape the condemnation of Gehenna. Uh, but they were convinced they were the religious ones. And, you know, if you're tempted to compare sins, ask yourself, what's worse, the sin of extortion or the sin of being responsible for keeping people out of the kingdom of God to, pe to cause them to lose salvation eternal life? And that's actually what that Pharisee was doing, but he didn't know that. Or he didn't want to know that. So if you put it that way, you see that the Pharisee's sin doesn't compare pretty well with uh, the publican's sin. And sin is sin, and the penalty of sin is death. Now, some of my notes here come from an article called Do You Hate Sin? I mentioned from, uh, it was from the Good News Magazine, uh, uh, January and April of 1971. Uh, by the way, when I do some of these sermon messages, I'll go and look at some of the old literature. I'll look at what I wrote and kind of put things together. As a matter of fact, for this particular one, I pulled some stuff out of uh, that book I wrote, uh, other scriptures I looked up, and again, some old uh, writings. Uh, we need to, to overcome 
our own sins and faults and let God deal with everybody else. Okay? Um, and, and you tell lies, you need to repent. Uh, if you don't repent, uh, it, claim your life like, like murder. Uh, you're not supposed to sin. You know, repent. Uh, God's Word is the right standard. You know, a lot of people don't realize their own tendencies to stray, but Satan does. Let's go to 1 Peter 5. Starting verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So, you know, we need to resist Satan. In Ephesians 2, 2, the Bible says he's the prince of the power of the air. He's got the majority to go along with him, to go the wrong way. But we're not supposed to follow the world to doing wrong. You don't have to go there, but Exodus 23, verse 2, it says, You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. So this is not just a concept that we hear from the New Testament. But we, just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean it's right. Everybody doing it doesn't make it right. We saw that in the Old Testament. And Jesus pretty much said the same thing in the New Testament, worded in a different way in Matthew chapter 7. We'll start in verse 13. See something that uh, Jesus himself taught. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Yeah, everybody's doing it, so let's go and do it. It's got to be right. Most people think it's right, so that must be right. No, it's not. You know, Eve succumbed to uh, Satan telling her to do something. Well, somebody else told me this, so that must be right. Verse 14, Jesus said, Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Most go the wrong way. Hopefully you're not among them, or you're not sure. Perhaps God is calling you. Yes, I've held up another booklet. Is God calling you? Again, available at the ccog.org website, such as this one and the other books that we have. Uh, God may be calling you if you don't want to sin. We need to resist Satan. Now, as far as sin goes, let's go to uh, James 1. I'm going to start with verse 12. I'll give you a moment to get there. James 1, starting verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Yes, you're going to have temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Verse 13, Let no one when he's tempted, saying, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and is enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So yes, some sins are not full grown. So repent from them. By the way, if you will confess your sins, God will forgive your sins, basically no matter what. In order to resist temptation, to get a long thought out of your mind, fill your mind with good thoughts. You know, Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is righteous, think on these things. That's a paraphrase, so maybe have got one of the two words not quite right. But the concept is there. Think on what's good and turn to God. 
Resisting temptation makes you stronger, while indulging in sin makes you weaker. I'm going to say that again. Resisting sin makes you stronger. Indulging in sin makes you weaker. Sin helps show for those who believe that we need God's help in His ways. Some people think uh, telling lies, particularly white lies, are fine, particularly they think no one's getting hurt. But what's God's attitude? Lying is always a terribly serious sin. Why? Because lying reveals a fatal flaw in character. Lying is deception. It reflects an attitude of hate, disrespect, selfishness, and even murder. Now, Jesus spoke of Satan as a murderer and father of lies in John 8.44. A liar doesn't really have character. He can't be trusted. Absolutely undependable. Now you say, wait a second. Haven't everybody lied? Yes. Does that make us all liars? In a sense, yes. But if we repent and we change, uh, we're not liars. To, to the best of my knowledge, I've not lied to any of you uh, ever. Uh, I may have stumbled over some words or uh, uh, misread some stuff, but I try to be truthful despite my flaws and uh, for, uh, speaking abilities or things. Lying doesn't is not just some small uh, sin. You know, it says in uh, Revelation 21.8 that all liars are going to have their part in the lake with burns and fire and brimstone. So we don't want to be lying. Lying is a serious sin. You know, are you shocked and moved by the sin that exists in the world today? The violence, the crime, pornography, the wars, abortions, racial bigotry, conflicts, the LGBTQ agenda, etc. You know, there's a church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, uh, God had Paul write about a man who was committing fornication. And he rebuked the uh, members of the church for their attitude. Because he told them they, sh they should have uh, uh, put this person out. Because he was living in sin on purpose. 1 Corinthians 5, 2. But they were puffed up. No, we can accept this. Yeah, he's disgusting, but he, but we are fine Christians. It doesn't affect us, so we don't really care. And you know, we're just above that. And Paul said, "No, you should have mourned." In Ezekiel, Ezekiel nine four, God says, "Go through the midst of the city, and make a mark for their basically for the protection and salvation on the forehead of those who sigh and cry for the abominations done in their midst." The book of Revelation talks about some people being marked at the end. It would be those who would sigh and cry about the abominations that we're seeing in the world today. You know, we are not to accept various things the Bible calls abominations. Um, you can read about these in Leviticus 11, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. Uh, it's also discussed in Romans chapter 1 in the uh, New Testament. I tend to read this a lot, so I'll just basically go through this, uh, starting verse 18. Find out the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Remember, all God's commandments are righteousness, so they want, they're not keeping them. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, including those who claim to be religious leaders, who are telling you why you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments, or giving you excuses how you get around them, which also the Pharisees did. 
Verse 22 it talks about professing to be wise, they become fools. They become corrupted. God gives them over to uncleanness. And you've got people who promote uncleanness. Uh, they think it's okay to clean, unclean, eat unclean meats, even though the Bible calls that an abomination. Uh, they dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And verse 26 in Romans, we find because of this, God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchange the natural use for what's against nature. The men leaving the natural use of the women, burn their lust for one another, men committing what's shameful, receiving themselves the penalty of the error which is due. God is saying, those who were uh, uh, lesbians and homosexuals, sodomists, are hurting themselves. That's what this says. But we were supposed to be told, now this is a good thing by society, and that's not the case. And basically, God's word says, because they didn't want to retain the true God in their knowledge, he gave over the base mind to do those things which are not fitting. A lot of these things that various government people are doing, not everything, is because they have a debased mind. Being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, their whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undeserving, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Now, the thing about unrighteousness is talking about all the Ten Commandments, but some of these specifically are referring to specific commandments. You know, judgment of God is those who practice those things are deserving of death, but not only those who do those, but those who approve it. For not to approve of these sins and think this is good, like many do. You don't have to go there, but Isaiah 58.1 talks about instead of condoning sin, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression and how to take up their sins. Now what's so bad about sin? Why does God say some actions are right and some are wrong? Did God arbitrarily decide what sin is going to be? Now that's what I thought growing up Greco-Roman, uh, a Roman Catholic, then you say, well, I've got to decide some things are right and some things are wrong, and let's find some really tempting ones to make those wrong. Is that how sin became sin? No. Uh, basically, God's laws were put in so you would lead the right way of life. In Proverbs 11.3, you don't have to go there, it talks about the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the per perverseness of fools, Old King James, will destroy them. Perversion brings automatic penalty. I read some of them from Romans uh, 1. And the reality is, walking in that way doesn't bring happiness, and these people, these practices hurt other people. Why is adultery a sin? Because it harms the human mind. Uh, you also get diseases, uh, you get unwanted pregnancy, etc. It affects how people will view their spouses back and forth. It leads to heartache, frustration, ultimately death. Now, we'll read some from the old uh, Worldwide Church of God about uh, what's so bad about sin. Is it enjoyable? You bet it is. That's why people engage in it. That's why temptation is so alluring. Adultery is physically and mentally pleasurable. I think it's disgusting that this is what they're saying. At least, I guess, the people who engage in it. And the kids who smoke pot are getting a kick out of it. And the forbidden fruit tasted good to Adam and Eve. No one denies the short-term enjoyment of sin. Then they quote 
they say. Hebrews 11.25 says, Moses chose to suffer affliction with God's people, then quote, to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. But sin's short-term pleasures automatically bring a long-term penalty. Adam and Eve lived to see one of their dearly beloved boys brutally murdered by the other. They finally witnessed the entire world being filled with violence. And they eventually died instead of enjoying the eternal life God had offered. The Bible actually shows that those who insistently engage in sin are, spiritually speaking, already dead. It likens them to a corpse. Sin is the way of get. If everybody's getting, nobody's producing. And all will die. But people say, oh, we can just send some and produce some in mixing good and evil. All are going to die. The Ten Commandments is the right way to live. Let's go to Deuteronomy 30. Starting verse uh, 19. Ten commandments are the way to live. Blessings come if you obey them. I call heaven and earth as a witness against you today. Uh, Deuteronomy 30 verse 19. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. God wasn't arbitrary with the rules he came up with. That, that you may love the Lord your God, you may obey his voice, and you may cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days. You don't have to go there, but Jesus said, for those who don't want to keep God's rules, the thief doesn't come except to steal and to destroy. But Jesus said, I've come, John 10, verse 10, that you may have life and you may have it more abundantly. Sinning does not lead to a truly abundant life, but to destruction. We need to renew our guard against all the sins that are around us. Uh, in Hebrews 11, we're warned about the deceitfulness of sin. Do we take sin for granted? Is it just mainly a religious word? Check up on yourself. Do you minimize your own sins? Are you coexisting with a bunch of small sins? Don't allow yourself to be blinded by the seriousness of the smallest sins in your life. Now I'm going back to a, a Worldwide Church of God article. Here. The perfect approach to all sins was given by the Apostle Peter. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord on all the righteous, his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay, that's 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12, probably. It looks like the old King James. Anyway, but the other part I want to read is this next part here. This is the attitude of, that we should have if we want to live forever. The more we overcome sin and live righteously before God, the more he can bless us and use us in his work. The greater the reward we'll receive in the soon coming kingdom. Let's abhor all sin, brethren. Let's flee from sin, cleave to righteousness, with our, all our heart and strength. But I found, uh, this is from a, a, about two years ago, there's an article called Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. And they think this is a good thing because this person said that she was told about sin, basically as a, some kind of a Protestant growing up. And uh, she doesn't like that, so she doesn't think people should know about sin. She thinks that she has a moral code, but she doesn't know about sin. And that, that's how, what she placed that to her daughter. Well, if there's no God, God's ways don't make any sense, and there's no life after death, one could probably conclude that it's okay to not teach about sin. But in the book of Deuteronomy, it says we're supposed to teach about God's ways and God's laws to our children. And yes, we are supposed to teach about sin. 
And Christians themselves, of course, are not to, to sin. Let's go to 1 John 2. Starting verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. Part of the sermon is to help you so you won't sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation of our sins, and not ours only, but for the whole world. And, you know, as we said before, the Bible says the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life of Jesus Christ our Lord. We know that eternal life is a reward of Christians. As far as now, how not to sin, let's go to Ephesians 4, or at least to sin less, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles. You don't walk as the world. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, because they don't want to retain God in their knowledge, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. They don't want to know God's law or commands. They don't know them well enough, but you can. Or more of them, particularly if you keep them. Because the blindness is in their heart. Who being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. We're not to be greedy, we're not to uh, be unclean, we're not supposed to go the world's way. Now I want to go to Romans 13. We're not supposed to make excuses. Romans 13, starting verse 12. The, day, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now let's go to Ephesians again, this time Ephesians 6. We're not supposed to excuse wrong behavior, but God has help for you. Ephesians 6, starting verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. Now I know it feels like we wrestle against flesh and blood. That uh, Satan and his demons are behind lots of this. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your waist guarded with truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, Ten Commandments, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Take the shield of faith. So I told you, if you don't have faith, that's a sin. You'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation, which is the spirit of the sword, which is the word of God. Praying always and with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So don't give up and pray. And for me, that utterance may be given to me to my speak bold, my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, which I'm an ambassador to change, as I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now I want to go to Mark chapter 10. Read uh, something here, starting verse 17. Let's take a moment or so. Now, as he, that's Jesus, this is Mark 10, 17, was going out on the road, one came out running, knelt before him, and asked. So this guy knelt before Jesus, said, good man, a good teacher, 
what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's none God, one, but that's God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Uh, uh, honor your father and mother. So he's talking about some of the Ten Commandments. And he answers him, These all, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. I've done this. So, wow, great. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell what you have, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. I'll come take up the stake and follow me. But this guy who came up to Jesus, who knelt before Jesus, was sad at this word. He went away sorrowful because he had a lot of great possessions. He had great possessions, it says. Notice that not just doing wrong was the answer. One is supposed to do good. In order to sin less, you need to do good when you can. I'm going to go to Proverbs 3, verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power the power of your hand to do so. And I want to read from the New Testament. I'm going to read James 4.17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's a sin. Yes, it's a sin not to do good. Yes, there are sins of omission. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, you have to enable every beggar who might not want to work or might use the money for drugs or uh, other harmful things. And while tithes and offerings are one way to do good, other ways to do good would include you know, reading the Bible, fasting regularly, encouraging others, uh, and helping those you see are afflicted, even if you're afflicted, when it's in the power of your hand to do so. Everyone can do good if they're willing to have the right focus. And, you know, we have a book about the purpose of humanity. I had it up here toward the beginning. The mystery of God's plan. Why did God create anything? Why did God make you? And basically, you're to do good for eternity. After you're resurrected, to make eternity better for yourself and everyone else. And you should be doing good now. You know, over two dozen times in the New King James Version of the Bible, it specifically says, do good. And we do good by working to help others. We do good by loving God and our neighbors. And I've explained more about some of this about God's plan with this free book. Christians are supposed to support the work of God to reach others and not get overly tied up with worldly concerns or find a few pet things that they've decided they've eliminated other churches because they know better. Uh, that, that's not it. Um, I want to go to Matthew uh, 6, starting verse 30. As far as worldly concerns go, Jesus said, Matthew 6, starting verse 30. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today, tomorrow is thrown in heaven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Remember, not having faith is a sin. Verse 31, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, and what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. And this will help you not sin if you seek first the kingdom of God. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Want to sin less? Do right. Hate sin. Resist Satan. Seek first the kingdom of God. Have faith. Confess your sins. And get back up if you fall. 
if you do these things, uh, you can sin less and be in the eternal kingdom of God. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God.